I think it's pretty safe to say that in the past 30 or 40 years, few people have done more to preserve baseball history than Janet Marie Smith. She has honored the past with current design and architectural details that reflect the golden age of baseball. Janet Marie Smith is currently the Executive Vice President of Planning and Development for the Los Angeles Dodgers. The list of ballparks and baseball-related structures that she's been responsible for creating, maintaining, and or preserving is long. They include Camden Yards, Fenway Park, and Dodger Stadium. Janet Marie Smith is my guest today on this week's episode of the Lost Ballparks Podcast. This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd's still is coming in. The bleacher area in center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a two throughout the evening. Here we are toward the end of season four of the Lost Ballparks podcast. And this particular episode is the very first time that I've taken the show on the road. I'm at Dodger Stadium today in the office of Janet Marie Smith. Thank you for taking the time today. This view, wow, we're looking out of your office window on the third base side of Dodger Stadium, just looking out across this magnificent ballpark. So hopefully I can stay focused on the task at hand and complete this interview. Let's start with where and when did you attend your first Major League Baseball game? And what do you remember about that day? My first Major League Baseball game was at the Astrodome in probably about 1968. The spanking new Astrodome is the new $31 million home of the Houston Astros, a dome stadium that holds nearly 50000 for a baseball game and more for conventions and meetings. The plastic ceiling makes it an all-weather stadium. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and we did not have, did not and do not have a professional sports franchise in Mississippi. So we were always co-opting anyone else's. You always knew what era someone was born, whether they were attached to the Cardinals, which they'd heard on the radio. There go the Cardinals on the field, and here for the play-by-play of the ballgame, and here's good evening to you, is Harry Carey. Thank you, Jack. Hello again, everybody. All set to play baseball here. Are the Braves, which they'd seen on television. In 1968, uh, my family went to Hemisphere in San Antonio. The San Antonio World's Fair was built for the young and the young at heart. Built for happy people who like a soaring lift on a sky ride. In route, we went through Houston and went to what I distinctly remember was being billed as the eighth wonder of the world. What time of year would you have been there? Oh, summertime. Oh, okay. So (laughs) you go from the blistering summer sun that Houston is so known for to the climate-controlled, air-conditioned... Well, you know, as a child, I don't think I was really focused on that. Right. Maybe had I been out in the sun, I would have remembered it. But since it was a perfectly lovely evening in an air-conditioned environment, I don't remember that part. What I do remember was just the purity of this circle. It was so perfectly round. And the diamond, of course, was a diamond. Sure. And I remember that they had these matrix boards. Never seen scoreboards like that before. The 
scoreboard is a $2 million item that's a show in itself. And you bought your popcorn in a cone-shaped thing that turned into a megaphone when you were finished with your popcorn, and you would yell, charge! <laughs> they do charge across the, the scoreboard. And even then, I was like, I'm not sure really get the charge in baseball. Yeah. But it was Texas, so we were doing it. It would have been so fun to go see a game at the Astrodome back in those days. So in the 1960s and 1970s, baseball began to transition, sometimes out of necessity, or at least perceived necessity, out of historically significant and architecturally impressive ballparks to what were considered by many to be bland, cookie-cutter, multi-purpose stadiums. Uh, the Phillies leaving Connie Mack Stadium for the Vet. The Reds left Crosley Field for Riverfront Stadium. The Pirates said goodbye to Forbes Field and began play at Three River Stadium. But then there was a turning point. Something happened in Baltimore that changed everything. Something historic, something that turned the tide. And Jana Marie, you were part of that story. You were sitting in the stands at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. This would have been in the late 80s. And you heard fans talking about the team wanting to build a new ballpark. Yeah, so let's go back to these round parks for a nanosecond because the urban planner in me is still interested in those. You know, we didn't start out building something we thought was going to be terrible. Not that I had anything to do with it, but sort of we as a society. Right. And if you think back to the 50s and what planners were doing in America, they were using urban renewal to clear out big swaths of a city. Sort of gone was this idea of contextualism. In were the highways. In was the idea of clearing big swaths of land and doing towers and plazas and all these things that were very much about that sort of brutalist movement of architecture at the time. So I've always felt that these round parks were just part of that. It's interesting to me, in particular, that you had the Dodgers leaving Ebbets Field and moving out to Los Angeles in the late 50s. And that was the first time that you'd seen baseball pull up roots like that and just sort of tear the heart out of its community and all of its fans. And suddenly cities that never thought their teams were leave were now worried about their teams leaving. But you can't just go help a private enterprise. So I think this multi-purpose park came from cities looking for excuses and rationales, not just to save teams, but to use sports for these big urban renewal projects. And then you sort of fast forward, that sort of ran its course, and we all know the story about it was too small for football, too big for baseball. The field orientation is terrible for both. So when the Colts left Baltimore in the mid-80s, most of the equipment and Colt memorabilia had been moved out of the Colt complex in Owens Mills, and the Colt employees had been told that the team was going to Indianapolis. And Baltimore was left with one team. The city and state no longer felt the Orioles leaving was a threat. It was like a reality, like they'd seen one team leave. Sure. They sure thought another one could, especially with the then owner, Edward Bennett Williams, living in Washington and always talk of Washington needing a team. Well, like a lot of baseball fans, I traveled from park to park, and anytime I went to you know, a conference or something, I went to see another stadium, and it was sitting in Memorial Stadium that I heard people talk about this new stadium that was going to be built downtown. And at first, I thought, oh, that's really too bad, because Memorial Stadium had this old shoe quality to it, and it was sort of nestled into this nice single-family house neighborhood. 
Maybe three months later, I just had this epiphany because I had studied Baltimore in planning school at City College in New York, and I knew about Baltimore reinventing itself when industry left the harbor and moved out because of shipping and containerization. They built this waterfront promenade. They put in the aquarium, the science center, the convention center. They did all these things to attract tourists to downtown and to do something that today we would call an urban entertainment center. All of a sudden, I thought, wait a minute, like putting baseball downtown is just part of that story. And so I had this total shift in emotion from it being kind of a drag to this like, wow, that is pretty amazing from a planning perspective. And so then you write a letter to Larry Lucchino. Who is the president um, of the club. And my letter worked its way to the HR department, which is being run by Calvin Hill. And Calvin sent me this very polite note saying they weren't hiring at the time. And it was so polite and so nice that I just knew it was a form letter. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just didn't let it deter me at all. And I just kept trying to get in touch with Larry until I finally did. And there's a lot of serendipity in life. And I think um, my persistence paid off, but my timing was also good. I think Larry was starting to feel the weight of having convinced the state legislature to build a baseball-only park and to save land and save bond money for a football stadium if they ever got an NFL team back. But just the day-to-day, how do you run this? How do you manage this? And it had fallen to Bob Elward, who was um, in charge of business affairs, but Bob already had a day job. So I got the I got the other part of the day job. And well, it's hard to imagine Camden Yards without the B&O Warehouse, which was originally built in 1899 beyond the right field uh, stands. But there were a handful of people on the project who in the very beginning of the planning stages were seriously considering knocking it down and you fought for it. Because it was felt that there wasn't enough room to breathe, that the stadium, as it was thought of then, Larry, uh, this is a separate story, but Larry came to find anyone who used the S word. He wanted a ballpark, not a stadium. But back in the days when a stadium was being discussed, there was a feeling that this old warehouse was just going to be in the way, that the site would be too small with the warehouse there. And I think what was really interesting to me was and still is, is how the stars aligned on that project. There you had a governor in the state of Maryland and William Donald Schaefer, who was the former mayor of Baltimore, who loved the city with all his heart and sort of famously said after Pricewaterhouse studied 30 sites for this new stadium, said, I don't care what the study says as long as it's going downtown because he just loved the city like this whole inner harbor had been his thing. And there you had Larry Lucchino, who by then had won the battle using Kansas City as a model, I might say. You know, there's always a hero in uh, every story, and Kansas City should get props for having been the first to separate the two venues and have baseball and football side by side. And so without an NFL team, it made it easier for Larry to persuade the state legislature to do this. But now, having won that battle, he was on to his next one, and that was how to make this an old-fashioned ballpark with modern amenities. And HOK Sport had been selected as the architect. 
H.O.K. had authored Pilot Field and Buffalo, which in some ways was the, sort of the progenitor of, of Camden Yards. But Larry really wanted to take this to the next level. Having grown up in Pittsburgh with Forbes as his own home ballpark, you know, he really knew firsthand what that kind of experience and intimacy could be. And so the idea of tearing down the building that gave context and a rationale to an asymmetrical playing field and the intimacy, I'll use that word again, that we were striving for just ran counter to that. So we were really lucky that um, there was enough space in people's, not only in the calendar for the project, but in the hearts and minds of all those people working on it to study the options and to make certain that we just didn't go to it with the motion that there was a rationale. The rationale for saving it was that we could make the footprint of the ballpark itself smaller if we took things out that didn't have to be in the stadium structure, like the offices, the central kitchen, the ushers' changing rooms, and really make a good urban building out of this old historic warehouse, and at the same time have a rationale for having the asymmetry of the playing field and the seating bowl that Larry had so advocated. Yeah, I mean, it's such a focal point now. I mean, it's iconic. You can't imagine going to a game at Camden Yards without that warehouse. Bob Costas was on in season three of the podcast and talked about how Camden Yards really started a revolution in baseball parks and stadiums that continues to this day. Which are tremendously appealing. Uh, And when you think about the ballpark, I forget what it's called now, but the ballpark in Chicago where the White Sox play, That was built in the early 90s, and it was the last one built before it dawned on everybody that we got to go back to the future here, that baseball has a unique kind of appeal, a unique kind of connection to its fans, and ballparks, the venues, are part of that connection. And to think that Camden Yards started it all, uh, it's extraordinary. It is to me, and I find myself... Uh, especially when I'm in a college classroom speaking to a generation of students who've only grown up with this generation of ballparks as a reference point, it's hard to describe how revolutionary it seemed at the time. And yet, again, I would give huge credit to Larry Lucchino and his team for the focus that was given to doing the best we could for Baltimore. And that was always something really special, is that we weren't trying to change the world. We weren't trying to change the course of history. We were simply trying to do the very best we could with the ballpark that we were building for the Baltimore Orioles. At the time you were planning and building Oriole Park at Camden Yards, Frank Robinson was the manager of the Orioles, and he had a lot of input in the planning. His fingerprints are all over Camden, right? I've always said that Frank Robinson was our secret weapon. We spent so much time meeting with fans, getting input from various community groups, working with the Greater Baltimore Committee, the Chamber of Commerce, the various cities from York, Pennsylvania, down to Northern Virginia that supported the Orioles and getting their input and helping them understand what we were doing. And I think many of them would have looked at Larry and I both like we had three heads with some of the things that we said about these old ball parks, but Frank Robinson, Frank being able to speak from firsthand experience of what it was like to play in a ballpark where fans were right on the outfield wall. Like Crosley Field. Crosley Field. The stories he would tell about backing up onto that terrace and how he knew as a player how to play that park in a way that no one 
on the other team ever knew and how the uniqueness of that park changed the way that he approached the game and that having home fans right there and that whole idea of having fans all around the outfield and having a seven foot wall, not eight feet, which was the norm at the time, so that you could rob a home run and you had fans who were sort of literally at eye level with the player was very much a part of Frank's advocacy long past the things you would expect a manager to care about, like the dimensions of the playing field, the size of the clubhouse, the position of the dugouts. After months and months of planning and construction on April 6th, 1992, Camden Yards officially opened. From the small town sandlots to the emerald patches in the nation's great cities, baseball fields are special places. Each one is the setting and the stage for an American rite of passage, and each is part of the fabric and fiber and mythology of the nation. The greatest of these green fields are hallowed places, pieces of Americana that live on in the minds of those who experience them. Forbes Field, Wrigley Field, Ebbets Field, Fenway Park. These are baseball's forefathers. And in 1992, their descendant, Oriole Park at Camden Yards, baseball's newest tribute to the game, and its traditional old-fashioned values opened its gates. Over three and a half million fans made their way through the gates at Oriole Park at Camden Yards that first year, and to this day, it remains one of the most beloved ballparks in all of baseball. So fast forward a little bit. In 2002, you joined the Boston Red Sox as the VP of Planning and Development in charge of the preservation and expansion of Fenway. Red Sox legend Rico Petroselli was on the podcast in season three, And he told me that before the 1967 season, there was serious talk about the Red Sox leaving Fenway Park. Yes, exactly. Either move it to uh, the suburbs, which, of course, the legislature in Boston wasn't too happy about that, or uh, move it out of Massachusetts. I mean, that's hard to imagine now. That 67 team probably saved one of the game's greatest ballparks. So some 30 years later, Jana Marie... You arrive in 2002, and one of the first things you did at Fenway was add a seating area on top of the Green Monster. Broadcasters Don Orsillo and Jerry Remy, who were part of the Red Sox broadcast team back then, sat atop the Green Monster seats when they opened in 2003 and broadcast a game. Now, welcome to our vantage point here tonight, up here in the Monster seats. And this is a little different view from the chicken. Yeah, this is nice. I like this. You're right on top of Manny over here and Johnny Damon. I think you wanted the project to serve as kind of a litmus test as to what fans would accept regarding changes and renovations to Fenway Park. Again, this was a Larry Lucchino-inspired idea. It was Larry who brought me into the, the Red Sox when he and John Henry and Tom Warner bought the club in 2001, December. 2001. And so our thinking was to first go after the low-hanging fruit. So the idea of putting uh, turnstiles on what was Yawkey Way, then now known as Jersey Street, and expanding the footprint, building back into what was known as the Fenway Garage and building big new concessions and getting rid of the chain link fencing and barbed wire that had separated the bleachers from everywhere else. So those were all the things that mattered to thinking about Fenway differently. And as we approached redoing this park and thinking of it as a historic building, we knew we needed to change its behavior. We wanted to add seats, but we didn't want to just stuff them in by the thousands. And our feeling about adding seats on top of the Green Monster was that there would be a cachet to them. 
that would instantly draw attention, but it was also just different enough that we would be able to get a sense of how fans and how the various levels of preservation from the city, state, to the federal government would view changes to Fenway Park. I've always loved that project in particular because with only 32,000 seats, you might have thought that we would have been pressured to put thousands of seats instead of a few hundred on top of the wall. But our feeling was that if we did that, eventually the novelty would wear off and it'd just be another outfield seat. Whereas putting a few hundred up there, doing a bar stool and a drink rail, that it would continue to have some credence even over the decades. And so Goodness, I guess it's been there for 20 years now. And really, it's it's still one of the most talked about and photographed uh, sections of Fenway Park. So, Jana Marie, for the last decade, you've worked for the Dodgers. And in your first couple of years, I think going back to 2013, you renovated the 1962 clubhouse, which was a marvel in itself, considering there was bedrock behind the clubhouse and what appeared to have no real path to being able to expand it. But you somehow found a way. Well, I had to. Stan Kasten hired me in August of 2012. And he said, look, when our fans come back in April and our players come home from spring training, it will be our first season as the new owners. He said, I do not want to show them renderings of a new clubhouse. I do not want to promise them something that's coming next year. He said, I want them to walk in to a new clubhouse. (laughs) So, you know, I just thought, well, we can't try the same thing that Everybody else has tried and not found a way to do in a single off-season. We'll have to do something different. So our idea was to take out all of the yellow field-level seats, go down, excavate out, build ourselves a basement, double the square footage of the clubhouse, put the seats back on, and voila, we had a new clubhouse. We were no longer sharing a dining room with the, the visiting team. One of the things I admired about Stan's approach is he said, look, let's do the same thing for the visiting team. We're not going to get into this like, oh, let's, you know, let's have this Taj Mahal and let them uh, still live in a half a century ago. So the nice thing about it is the players have a modern facility. We still have the old lockers and you'll see them throughout Dodger Stadium. We've turned them all into display cases. Yeah, there really is so much of that that has happened here. So much repurposing of old materials, uh, benches, lockers, even wall tiles. We didn't throw anything away. I mean, really didn't throw anything away. And I love that our ownership has been so supportive of these things. Our focus that first year was on not only improving things for the players, but taking a look at the fact that it this is iconic as this mid-century modern building with its pastel colored seats and its hexagonal shaped scoreboard has become over the years. We wanted it to feel comfortable for fans today. And Our chairman, Mark Walters, I remember him saying sort of famously back then, fans do not show up to stand in line for the bathroom or a beer. Fix both of those things. And so we really focused on adding these big new plazas, big new restrooms, making certain that it all looks like it belongs to your 1962 Dodger Stadium, but it all feels like it belongs to the way we live our lives today and the kind of amenities that we expect to find in a place where we've chosen to spend our leisure time. And because there's so much history associated with the Dodgers, we've just literally kind of shaken out our closets and and hung things up that people thought should have gone into the trash, you know? And uh, it's kind of amazing. As soon as you put a frame around it, and put it on the wall, you're like, oh, wow, that does look like art. And to that point, on the press level, one of the great pieces of the past that visitors to Dodger Stadium can see, there are these old Dodger traveling trunks 
from long, long ago. Brooklyn. Brooklyn, right. And it's one of my favorite displays at the ballpark. Just imagining Jackie Robinson's bats, maybe a glove from Pee Wee Reese, Roy Campanella's catcher's gear, all being transported by these old chests, these old trunks. Those trunks were sitting out in a trailer in our parking lot, and we're like, bring them in. Yes. Put them out there. And at first, our security was like, oh, what if they get stolen? Well, well, like, they're probably not. (laughs) They're giant. (laughs) They're huge. They're probably not. And uh, I've loved taking things that even, even like the old Sporting News, he's big, they used to take Sporting News from the 60s, 70s, and 80s and put them in these leather-bound covers. Well, now you can get it online. So we were told we should just throw them away. You can get it online. Nobody wants to look at that stuff. We're like, ah, they're kind of beautiful, though. So we ended up using them for decoration in one of our clubs. Anyway, it's just so fun. And I think that is, of course, one of the magical things about baseball is that even if we aren't truly nostalgic about something because we didn't live that era, we didn't know that park, there's still this romance associated with it. And I, I'm struck by the memories of Ebbets. Like you walk around here, there aren't people here who who really were ever at Ebbets, but they've heard so many stories about them and their grandmother told them this and they remember Tommy Lasorda saying that or Vin Scully telling these stories. So it was, it's painted so vividly in our minds that even if we never knew it, we feel like we did. Good evening, everybody. And despite the fact that I have just knocked a cup of coffee in my lap and a suit that's just out of the cleaners, it's great to be home. And now, thanks to the work that you and your team have done, there are pieces of Ebbets Field, these little remembrances of that great old Brooklyn ballpark that are scattered throughout Dodger Stadium. And that brings me to the center field renovations that you have led at Dodger Stadium. They have elevated the fan experience, I think, while preserving the beautiful mid-century modern aesthetic that makes this place one of the all-time greats. Let's go through the, some of the changes bit by bit, starting with Dodger Stadium's new front door, the center field plaza. As you're walking in the front door, as a fan walking through the gate before game, maybe one or two hours before the game, the hitter's eye is rolled up. The center field fence is open, which gives fans who are walking in a clear, unobstructed view straight through the outfield to home plate where players are taking batting practice. I've never seen anything like it. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it was such a focus for us. We're like, how many ballparks do you walk in and you're looking at the back of a big wall? Like, yes, the batter's eye is important, but who said it had to always be 50 by 100 feet? And so the magic of the way this has been done at Dodger Stadium is that, just as you said, the center field gates fold open, the garage doors roll up, the shades come down. And it allows this unbelievable view as you walk in past the Jackie Robinson and Sandy Koufax sculptures. But then when the game begins, it all closes up and it just sort of melts into this big, dark backdrop. And one thing we tried really hard to do was to make it not only a big, dark backdrop for the batter's sake, but to preserve the sort of magic that happens at Dodger Stadium when the sun goes down. Because being surrounded by Elysian Park, one of the largest urban parks in America, means we have no twinkle lights. Other than the stars, it's just the baseball park and this beautiful sky, dark nighttime sky. And our batter's eye melts into that sky. And I think it's just magical. Yeah, it really, really is. And one of my favorite things about the latest renovations at Dodger Stadium are the left center and right center home run seats. 
I don't think there are any other seats that are like it in baseball. My son and I were sitting in them about uh, about an hour ago, and there's literally nothing in front of you but green grass. You feel like you are playing center field. Isn't that fun? And isn't it crazy to think that for 59 years, it's set out there as an escape route for those fans who were sitting in the bleacher seats in the pavilion? Yeah, and now you have what many fans will consider the best seats in the house. Oh, there's also a speakeasy tucked underneath the stands with the core that's consistent with Dodger Stadium's opening in 1962, along with baseball chandeliers and light fixtures that dangle from the ceiling that harken back to the iconic rotunda at Ebbets Field. It was so much fun doing that project, and we had such a great design team. Um, Brenda Levin, uh, who was the architect for many of these things, worked very closely with DAIQ, who'd worked with me on the Fenway renovations. Studio MLA did our landscaping and helped us figure out how to kind of carve this plaza so that it did not feel like a whole bunch of ramps, even though we change almost a full story from where you walk in to where you get to the Gold Glove Bar and the the speakeasy. And it's just so nice to see a building where it looks exactly like it did in 1962, but it behaves so differently. It's knowing how to go in and do some gentle touches. And certainly the Dodgers team that Stan Kasten has put together and the way that we've focused on our sponsorship, our ticket sales, our food and beverage, our retail, and really worked as a team to sort of make all those things part of the script, I think is what makes it so fun. And I had someone ask me the other day in an architectural forum, how do you do something for everyone? And I think it's when you pay attention to the fans that come in and how they're using a space. And you find that there's some that are just, they're rabid fans or staying on the pitch count. They've got to be in their seat. And there are others that are just here because it's a fantastic atmosphere. Yeah, we were talking with Kelsey, who works on your planning and development team here at Dodger Stadium. And she was walking my son and I around the ballpark today. And she mentioned that her favorite place now to watch a game is this section right above the outfield pavilion. Uh, there's this boardwalk, a place to stand, a little rail to set your food or drink down, and it goes all the way around and just provides a new fantastic viewing experience for games at Dodger Stadium. One of the things that's been really fun for us is to take a building that had 56,000 seats and figure out how to keep that capacity of 56,000, but change it so that not every seat is a stadium chair. And so as we started to take seats off of the back of each level to create seating that would allow someone in a wheelchair to see over the fans in front of them and standing room so that you had a place to just stretch your legs and an inning eating your hot dog standing up so that you were sort of able to stretch during the course of the game. It also gave us the ability to do this complete 360 around Dodger Stadium. And that's also something that Stan Kasten really pushed us to try to figure out is how to change a building that was designed for everyone to park on the level they were on, enter on that level and leave on that level. And that was the end of the story. Right. So the Centerfield Plaza project, which has this two and a half acre plaza, the new front door is its centerpiece, 
also includes five elevators, six bridges, four escalators, you know, the glue that really allows fans to come in whatever gate is most convenient to them, whether they've come by Uber, driven their car, walked over from Sunset, or whether they've they've taken the free Metro bus from Union Station. You can enter whatever gate you like, and now there's an easy way to move around and get to your seat. I do want to mention, too, that as we sit here in your office looking out across the field toward the visitor's bullpen in right field, there is now a bullpen overlook where you could not possibly be any closer to the pitcher warming up. You can feel the pop of the catcher's mitt. This is one of the really cool, not everybody knows about it, features at the ballpark. Not a ticketed seat either. Anyone can sit there. The other thing I love is the gold glove bar. If you go in there and you, you are at the same level as the home team bullpen and you are closer to the mound and the pitcher warming up than his coach is. It's just crazy. Yeah. Uh, but he can't see you because of the dot matrix right. uh, on the on the glass. So it's just our goal has been to keep all of the things that are memorable about Dodger Stadium while still offering these modern amenities because we don't ever want to wind up in your lost ballparks column. Oh, no, no, of course not. We need to do everything we can to preserve Dodger Stadium, Wrigley Field and Fenway Park for generations to come. Look, I was going to ask you this. As someone who has been in charge of the planning, development, designing and caretaking of some of baseball's most historic ballparks, What would you have done to save, say, Ebbets Field or the Polo Grounds? I would imagine that had there been interest in keeping them alive for baseball, that the approach would have been very much like Fenway. We talk about Fenway Park as a renovation. The truth of the matter is that it's a partial renovation, but it's mostly additions and reuse of existing buildings. Just as we use the B&O warehouse in Baltimore to house many of the functions that support baseball, we took the Geno building and the Fenway garage, the air rights over Lansdowne Street and the street known as Jersey Street and grew into those spaces. So the architecture didn't change, but the use of those buildings changed. And whether or not there might have been an opportunity to do something similar at Ebbets and the Polo Ground, we'll just have to go back in time to find out. Yeah, wouldn't that be great to have a time machine? I I think about the Centerfield Clubhouse at the Polo Grounds, the Schaefer Beer scoreboard at Ebbets Field, just if those pieces of the past could have been preserved somehow. We talk about the preservation of part of the outfield wall of Forbes Field on the campus of the University of Pittsburgh. I'm thankful that the John T. Brush stairway that led New York Giants fans down Coogan's Bluff into the Polo Grounds has been restored and is once again walkable. The ticket house at Braves Field is now the Boston University Police Station. And Cleveland League Park's ticket house has been restored. And all all those success stories make me wonder, uh, will make me sad, really, because I know that there's more that could have been done to save, for instance, part of Detroit's Tiger Stadium. Well, I agree with you. I think that one of the, the unexplored areas of our baseball world is how to repurpose a ballpark when there's not a desire to play there anymore, but the building itself has useful functional life. And I think as we look more seriously at sustainability issues, that that's something we have to address. And maybe one of my favorite not yet mentioned in this conversation, is the little Ed Smith Stadium in Sarasota that I did uh, for the Orioles in 2009 to 12. Peter Angelos and Andy McPhail had focused on Sarasota as being a fantastic home for the Orioles. 
But what was being offered was a 20-year-old ballpark that two teams, the White Sox and, and the Reds, had left because it just was too too dumpy. And the city was offering some 30-something million for the renovation at a time when everybody else was building new for $90 million. And people said, well, it can't be done. But today, Ed Smith Stadium is one of the most popular spring training destinations for anyone who visits in the Grapefruit League. And underneath all of that new stuff that we added in 2009, 10, 11, and 12 uh, in the capable hands of the architect David Schwartz and his team is that original kind of dumpy 1989 building. And so that, to me, is an excellent example of how you can reuse components of a park and not tear it down and start over, but still end up something that feels new and fresh. I I do want to say this, Jana Marie. I think if I worked in this office every day, I would be very distracted. I mean, just sitting here over the past 30 minutes, I have this perfect view of the right field bleachers where Kirk Gibson's famous home run landed to win game one of the 1988 World Series. How do you not get distracted? Well, I would consider those moments not distractions, but inspiration. I do look out all the time and I do find inspiration in it. But I have all these questions. Like I never see Oral Hershiser that I don't feel like, can't we talk about all that foul territory that used to be here that's not here anymore? Like, can we talk about that? Like, I think it's just so amazing to think about that, this building and how differently it played back when it had all that space. Yeah, and all of those little details, those little anecdotes are what I think I miss the most about hearing Vince Coley call games. Do you have a favorite Vince Coley moment or story? Well, I I don't know that I have a favorite Vince story without thinking for a minute, but what I would say is amazing about working for the Dodgers is it is like baseball royalty all the time. Every day is amazing to me. Tommy Lasorda's office was next to mine. Uh, for many years. And we would come across a photo or a program or something. And I'd say to Tommy, can you tell me what this is? And there was never a short answer. It was always a full, it was always a full blown afternoon learning about whatever it was I had taken to him. And to have, have heard some of those stories firsthand was just phenomenal to me. So when Tommy passed away, his office, as you might imagine, was just chock-a-block full of all this incredible stuff. And we had put these six lockers um, in center field but hadn't yet decided what to put in them. And so we asked Tommy's family if we could take the things from his office and use them for this display in center field at at the speakeasy. And they said yes. And so I love going out there because I feel like it's an exhibit that Tommy himself curated because it's all his stuff. There was even a Mississippi State cowbell in there, and people accused me of planting that in the locker, but I did not. Tommy had it in his office. <laughs> Jana Marie, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here at Dodger Stadium today. Spend some time remembering the past and hear about all of the exciting things that you've been working on over the past several years. What you have done at Camden Yards, at Fenway, Dodger Stadium, and so many other ballparks across the country will, I think, one day take you to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, thank you. The fact that they've got my hard hat there, I think, is honor plenty. And I I am very flattered about that. Thank you. All right. So on the list of things to do this summer, sit in the home run seats at Dodger Stadium, 
catch a home run ball while enjoying a Red Sox game on top of the Green Monster at Fenway, and spend a summer day at Camden Yards. Okay, my son and I were talking today about how it would be great to hit all three of those this summer. In addition to being an absolute pioneer and trailblazer in the field of ballpark design, development, and historical preservation, Janet Marie Smith is one of the nicest people you will ever meet. My mom had this quality where when you talk to her, she made you feel like there was no one else in the world at that moment. She had such a big heart and was such a good listener. She just had a gift for making you feel heard. Janet Marie Smith is just like that. A lot of fun. Really enjoyed talking with her today. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by John Carter, Manny Zablakis, Briggs Buckingham, Kyle Schmidt, Brian Bingert, Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra, and Ryan Beard. A reminder that the new Lost Ballparks limited edition t-shirt is now available at lostballparks.com for Lost Ballparks Clubhouse members. When you sign up to be a member of the clubhouse, not only do you help make this podcast commercial free, but you also get all of the podcast episodes a week early. You get the t-shirt and a whole bunch of other extras too. So check that out when you get a chance at lostballparks.com. And I'll talk to you next week for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.